The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is sponsored by Unity.org. Elevate your life with the Rise Into Your Power Habit Tracker. Track up to 10 habits for 30 days and experience transformative results. To learn more, visit go.unity.org forward slash rise. Hello and welcome to the Mentory TV podcast. I'm Patricia Falco-Bekali, your host. Great to have you with me. Stay curious. That's the tagline of Mentory TV. What do you get here? Awesome conversations with awesome guests talking about their own sector, their own expertise, mentoring us about what they really know deeply and vertically. We speak about spirituality, health, wealth, leadership, and all the other things that are important to us that are today's megatrends. So if you're interested, look and listen. Listen to the podcast and have a look at my YouTube channel called Mentory TV. You find me there. And I hope you do like the upcoming conversation with my guest today. Welcome back to another edition here on Mentory TV. I'm Patricia Falco-Bekali, your host. Let me ask you something. Have you ever had an addict amongst your family members, your friends, or maybe just, you know, an inner kind of circles, maybe not friend, but somebody you know about that had a real usage problem using substances, abusing substances? You may say, no, 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 I haven't, I haven't, you know, drug addicts, who are they? But if you think about drugs, or substances. We always think about opioids, cocaine, cannabis, synthetic drugs. Do you really think straight away about alcohol or tobacco, which are actually the main drugs in our society? Well, apart from sugar, but that's a different issue, not for today. But as you gather, we're going to talk about addiction today, substance abuse, And we're going to not only define what addiction is, but what addiction may mean to the person that is, and I will call them a user, and what it means for the environment of that person, that personal, emotional network that that person has around, the family, the beloved ones, and most importantly, how they may deal, react, rather respond to a person close to them having a real usage problem. And this is why I'm going to present and introduce you to this book, The Beyond Addiction Workbook for Family and Friends, Evidence-Based Skills to Help a Loved One Make Positive Change. It is by Carrie Wilkins, PhD, and some of her, two other of her colleagues, but uh, she's the co-author. And we have Carrie on our show today. Carrie, thank you so much for being with us to discuss something which I would refer to as a real pandemic in our society, substance abuse. Thank you so much for having me. And I have to say, I love all the stickies you got on that workbook. I'm dying to know which parts we're going to be talking about. (laughs) You know, Carrie, I always say, I cannot think without my pen. Actually, my brain is somewhere in here, and I cannot remember without a sticker (laughs) because it's all on there. (laughs) There you go. We have a lot to talk about, and that was a beautiful layout of just how we like to talk about substance use issues, because it really is 
the whole range from people with a very serious problem that might relate to the idea of I have an addiction all the way to maybe just problematic use and that you're just starting to get concerned about something um, in a loved one, in your kid. Uh, so we can really talk about how do we help the whole range of people? Yes, absolutely. And there is a whole range of people. And, um, you know, just to kind of give a little bit more meat and numbers to what we're going to talk about and why uh, we may refer to um, addiction or substance use abuse as a real pandemic is the latest UN drug world drug report 2022 just came out. And Carrie, when I heard the numbers that 5.5% of the total world population actually saw drug related death. Latest numbers, 2019, simply because of COVID, but that really flabbergasted me. The second number I want to throw at our community and, and you as well is like the healthy life lost due to early death with drug-related substance abuse. Like 230 million years, 230 million years lost due to tobacco, 93 million years lost due to alcohol, and 31 million years due to drugs, cannabis, etc. So that means means really that about 9% of the world population have seen an early death because of substance use. Now, Kerry, let me first of all, before we get into the real deep dive of addiction and what it really means and the definition of it, why are you on this mission? How come that your own life story, your own life path has put you in this wonderful, for me wonderful, not a leading question, position of looking at this at this issue? I don't want to call it a problem, a fact. Mm -hmm. And what in your life has really made you be where you are right now in your position? That's a that's a complicated question because it's lots of different things. And, you, you know, as you started the show, you ask, do you know anybody who has a struggle with substance use? And I personally have never met somebody who doesn't know somebody. Um, so I, you know, grew up, I grew up in rural Western Kansas, actually in a farm community. And there's a lot of people who struggle with substance use and nobody talked about it. Nobody talked about it. It was a very private family problem. Nobody that I knew sought treatment. I lost a couple of friends, um, one gravely wounded, one died, you know, due to drinking and driving. And we were just high school kids drinking too much, right? Um, and it resulted in death and a, and a life altered. And then I went on to train as a psychologist and you know, you spend four years seeing clients and you're getting lots of supervision. And one of my, in my last training year, I had this woman who was in pain so much. She would come late. She was, she had a terrible trauma history. She was very chaotic. She would miss sessions and in supervision, I was getting all this supervision to talk about her childhood and which was important and relevant. But, and this is like now 25 years ago when I was in training, so hopefully things have changed a little bit, but in four years of graduate school training, I'd never been trained to really assess and ask about substance use. You know, maybe you ask once at the beginning, a person doesn't acknowledge it, you just move on and talk about other things, right? My last session with this woman, she told me she was drinking two bottles of wine a day. So the whole time I was seeing her, which was about a year, she was in alcohol withdrawal the whole time. I didn't know. <laughs> and I wasn't trained to know. 
So I was like, that is never going to happen to me. So I decided to go on and get specialized training in substance use, working with substance users and just fell in love with it because um, I love them. They're the most compelling, interesting people and that they get better. And it's such a, when they get better, it's so magical, but you really have to be able to understand the problem from a perspective of learning so that you can really kind of stay on for that that process of change, which for some people can take years and years and years. It's never a straight line. You know, I go to treatment and I get better. You know, I go to rehab and I get better. I stop drinking and I get better. Um, most people have so many different things that they have to change. So um, I'm really excited about that process and, you know, was trained in strategies that help people get better. So, and another thing people will say, they will say, I know somebody using substances. And then when they find out what I'm doing, when, when I tell people, yeah, I treat addiction, people are like, oh, that must be so hard and so difficult. Mm. And I'm like, it is, it is, and it's so amazing <laughs> and so powerful when you can really help someone um, change and understand themselves better and help their whole family thrive. Um, so it's unbelievably rewarding work. So that's where we are today. That's where we are today. And I think what you said right at the beginning that, you know, oh, well, these are school kids, teenagers getting drunk. So what? Same with cannabis. Now, even worse, I guess, because uh, it's been legalized. Um, did you ever find yourself, even as a teenager, uh, in the moment that you'd say, hey, one more drink and this is getting too much of a habit? I mean, did you ever have that moment where you said one more drink and maybe I might need a drink next time, not because I want to, but because I really feel I have to. I, I didn't experience that. I wasn't drinking that frequently, but what I was, I, what I was doing and what my friends were doing all the way through high school and college, which is, again, I don't know what happened so much in Europe, but in the state, you know, the state universities is the binge drinking pattern where you might not drink for four or five days, but the two day, days you do drink, you're drinking to blackout and you're drinking unbelievable amounts of alcohol. Um, and then you don't drink again, you know, so you don't really build up that dependence, but you build up tolerance. Um, and then lots of really negative things can happen in those binge drinking episodes, you know, whether it's unwanted sex or risky behavior or drinking and driving, you know, the numbers of psychological and physical wounds that happen to young adults because they're drinking too much and this binge drinking pattern is enormous. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're so right. You know, I went to university in the UK and I, I, I know people that say being able to drink is actually culture. It's part of culture. It's part of being a connoisseur and it's part also of family culture. So having a drink is something that is okay. Right. Then I went to the UK, uh, uh, to university and my family comes from, we don't drink. We just don't drink, we don't smoke, we're just really from that side. For other people, maybe, oh my God, how boring, what a boring bunch. Came to university, and what you just said is so right, because this binge drinking, okay, so everything, everybody was tuned in on Monday to get to Friday because the big aim over the weekend was get pissed and get laid. All right. And then best ever is on Monday, you got to, I don't even know who I was with the last 48 hours. I'm like, huh? But how is that fun? But that's me. Okay. That's, I, I have another type of addiction and we'll talk about that later on as well. But that is something I think is so socially accepted because it's fun, but it really can set off an entire society on a wrong 
trajectory. And and I think this is why I'd I'd like to you know start the basic of our conversation before getting into the real good toolbox you have created with your colleagues. How do we define addiction? If, for example, smoking and um, and drinking is okay and is not actually seen as substance abuse. Well, so there's, you know, there's a diagnostic criteria that, you know, if you answer yes to 12 questions, um, then you have a very serious dependence issue. And it's really on a continuum. So somebody might answer yes to two or three of these questions. Um, Somebody might answer yes to eight of these questions. Um, And in those questions, the, the two things that really kind of tip people into you know, so like that binge drinking episode, right? Somebody who's binge drinking will be answering yes to questions like suffering consequences, you know, as a result of my substance use. But they're probably not going to answer yes to I need more and more to get the same effect or I have withdrawal symptoms when I'm not drinking, right? So they're not going to, they may actually score lower on the dependent, I mean, on the disorder continuum but their consequences may be life altering like it was for my friends in high school right <laughs> so they were all really good kids athletes good students and suffered grave harm right so the the cost is massive and then you may have somebody who you know on the surface isn't actually having that many consequences you know they they've got a job they're they're married they have all these kind of nice things in their life but they're drinking every single night three or four, five drinks, they've built up a tolerance so they don't seem intoxicated, they just seem normal. But if they try to take those four or five drinks out, they don't feel so great. They, they don't sleep well, they have high anxiety, maybe they're more irritable, maybe they get a little shaky. You know, So that's somebody who might have low consequences on the surface, meanwhile their, body's, their body is suffering. Um, you know, they may not be hitting the radar of their doctor yet, um, but they'll they'll suffer withdrawal symptoms. So what, when we're looking at severity, part, part of what we're looking at is, do you have withdrawal symptoms if you take the substance out? All right, so that means your body is having a physiologic, your body's adapted to the substance in your body and your neurons in your brain kind of need it at this point, right? So if you take it away, take it away, those neurons are like, hey, what's up? <laughs> I need that. I need that to calm down. I need that to sleep. I need that to feel better. Um, so you've got the the dependence leading to withdrawal, and then you've got tolerance, which, you know, maybe I used to be able to drink two drinks and that was fine. And then I started adding a third and then I needed a fourth to feel like I could go to sleep or whatever it is. So tolerance goes up. Um, and, you know, that happens in different ways based on our physio- physiology, um, you know, like you as a coming from a family of non-drinkers, you have two glasses of wine, you probably feel like, whoa, that's, I'm hungover it for days, okay, right? It was called a cheap date. Right. Because right. I didn't cost much when we went out for dinner, I didn't drink. <laughs> right, so your, your genetics, your life experience, everything is kind of a setup for you to be really impacted by the effect of substances. And you probably are like, I don't, I don't like that. If I come from a family of heavy drinkers, So it's kind of in my, and one of the interesting things about the genetic risk about substance use um, is that 
what it seems to do is make it so that you actually need more of the substance to feel it. So if I come from a family of drinkers, I might actually need two drinks to even feel the buzz, you know, and three drinks or four drinks feels like you're two drinks, you know? Um, so epigenetics my, getting into the picture there. My, my tolerance is just a little higher. And so I need more to feel the effect and needing more to feel the effect is not a good thing, right? Because then you end up using more. <laughs> so Yes. yes. Um, and it's, so, it's so interesting what you say, um, if I just uh, may interject, is that it seems to be a creeping kind of issue. And when you said about the questionnaires, people would say, yes, I drink X, Y, Z. But then when it comes to, okay, what are the consequences if you don't, then the little lies may come in. So there's a break in accepting, yes, I do this, but maybe a non-acceptance to actually I'm suffering consequences. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that we do when we interview people and I'm talking to people is first, I want to know the benefits. I want to know what you get out of it. You know, people, when they come to an addiction expert, they're expecting to be told, you're doing a bad thing, stop doing it, right? And unfortunately, that is the message they get from some treatment providers. What we do and what the evidence-based strategies do are to really help you be curious about what do you get from that substance that works for you? Because we need to figure out what that is so that we can help you replace it with something else, with a more effective strategy. So I want to know the benefits almost more than I want to know the cost. But really being able to help somebody in a non-defensive way, just like honestly examine how is this affecting me? Like I might not be fighting with my wife and I'm not like doing terrible things at the end of the day after I've had four or five drinks, but I'm falling asleep. We're not having sex. We don't talk about things, right? So those are subtle, corrosive mm. things that can happen in your relationship if you're using substances in a heavy way, but you might not notice that. And then all of a sudden, five years into your marriage, things are not great, right? So again, sometimes the consequences can be dramatic. And sometimes they're just, like you said, this creep, this corrosive. And also like smoking, smoking is such a difficult. It's so addicting. Nicotine is one of the most, like the most addictive substance. Um, and smokers, when you're a young smoker, you're not, you might intellectually be thinking, I know I need to stop because I might get cancer. Right. But you're not suffering in the moment, negative consequences physically. You don't really feel it. Um, so it's a very hard thing to put down because the power of it and how good it feels when you smoke and get yourself out of nicotine withdrawal, which is really all smokers are doing. It's not actually that enjoyable, but when you're dependent, <laughs> you end up like needing to smoke to get yourself out of withdrawal. And so it feels good. And they think, oh, it feels good, but they're just getting out of withdrawal. But um, those are long-term health consequences. The short-term benefit is very powerful and that's what hooks people in. So yeah. For each person, we're looking at the the mix of short-term consequences, long-term consequences, short-term benefits, long-term benefits, you know, and we've got to really help them think through for themselves, is the behavior I'm engaging in working for me now and in the future? And I think, you know, you said so many things that we need to unpack here because this is, there is so much in there. Well, you know, you know, Gabo Mate, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you're, of course, he's a guru when it comes to addiction and trauma. And I'm sure you also know uh, Richard Schwartz and his work as well. So, um, and the thing is, what you also do with the invitation to change, you kind of completely look at the why. 
not that the problem is the using and the user, but the problem, it's a symptom. The problem is underneath. And that is something I think a lot of people, family members with all their love, they go rational, rational, rational. Don't do this. Drugs don't uh, are not good for you. Do you know what you do to your brain when you drink or take a Mariana? I mean, yes, you don't feel it now. You feel high, dopamination, analampkit. We know all of this, right? And long term, who cares about the long term? Who cares about the rationale? discourse right now. Yeah, of course it makes sense, but it doesn't feel good. So I think these layers, it, it, this is not necessarily uh, something that a lot of people, loved ones, actually know. They just say, how, how, I don't understand you. You don't need to understand, right? You need to find out. And I think this is where your approach is so beautiful, coming from a place of like, uh, you know, Zen Buddhism calls Shoshin, you know, the beginner's mind. Let me know your why. Let me know your motivation. What is the value you were talking about? Okay, we need to swap here, right? What is the value you get, you know, doing something that is harmful to you, knowing it and still doing it? And you just said a lot of things we need to unpack. <laughs> so let's, let's do this then. Let's unpack our puzzles. Um, because I think part of our mission with the Foundation for Change and with this workbook and the invitation to change approach is treatment, like, so the treatment industry and treatment professionals are, have really started to take on these evidence-based strategies that are, and like you said, Gabor Mate and these people that are out really talking about, we need to understand the why, right? So the, for the person with the problem and for the treatment professional world, things are changing um, in a, in a, in a nice way. It's still too slow for me, but it's changing. So that's okay. Family members and lay people still only have kind of this cultural messaging that has been out there for a very long time. And the thing about substance use problems and, and uh, uh, several other problems, including obesity and things like that, they're very stigmatized problems. We look at the person with the problem and we think something must be wrong with them. We think they're lazy. We think they're selfish. We think you know, they don't care about anything, but getting high, you know, so there's, there's all these stigmatized ways of understanding these behavioral risky behaviors. Um, and there's a lot of shaming, right? And, and family members have gotten the message, at least in the United States, I'm not sure what happens over there, but like these messages of like, tough love, let your loved one bottom out, there's nothing you can do. You know, there, you have to confront the problem. Confront, 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 um, you know, make sure they know the costs, right? So this is the messaging that family members get, um, which, you know, you said, like they, they, and they then think, I've got to talk my loved one out of it. I've got to tell them everything that they're doing wrong and how they're affecting my family. Unfortunately, what, and there's some really, there's a lovely paper about um, the impact of confrontation. Uh, William White, we did a whole review of confrontation as a strategy between people and in and in particular in the addiction treatment world and there's not a single study that shows that confrontation is an effective strategy it doesn't work <laughs> and in fact what it does is it causes people to hang on to the behavior more tightly you know because you're trying to talk them out of it they're going to hang on to it and really defend their position and one of the things that we've i mean some of the things that we've put in the invitation to change approach are a lot of communication strategies that really help you lower that defensiveness in the other person and create an environment where you can have a conversation about the behavior that you're concerned about 
And like you said, approach it with curiosity, approach it with, I want to understand you. I want to, because if I understand you, I can have some empathy for you, you know, and that empathy is going to help me collaborate with you. And it's going to help me want to help you instead of want to punish you, push you away, all these things that we want to do with people with substance use problems. And going back to Gabor Mate, the studies that they've done with people with significant substance use problems is like anywhere from 60 to 80% of them have trauma. So they are self-medicating, you know, whether it's self-medicating severe PTSD symptoms, I can't sleep, I'm having flashbacks, the world is a scary place, substances really make those bad feelings go away, all the way to the kind of lower end of the trauma spectrum of like, I don't know how to, I was neglect. I mean, it's not lower, I don't even know how to say it, it's all significant. Deeper, but, deeper maybe, maybe you know, but more relational, you know, where I'm like, I grew up in a household where we didn't talk about things or I was shamed or we didn't learn how to regulate our emotions. Substances help with those issues, right? So people and, you know, like all these young adults, like you said, the numbers for substance use problems in the beginning of your show, I think they're going to increase dramatically. Um, like I don't, we're not, we're nowhere near seeing the fallout of the pandemic, um, especially with young adults and adolescents and and the impact of social media. And I just think there's so many things affecting young adults and teens that we're going to be fighting this battle for a very long time. And if family members don't have strategies to like really slow down and be like, okay, like my kid's doing things that are concerning me and I don't want them to do that. So I can go straight to punishment and I can go straight to lecturing or I can slow down and try to like understand what What's happening for my kid? Why why are they turning to the substance? What are they getting out of it? You know, what are they? Is it something with their friends? Is it something that helps them feel differently that they don't know how to feel in any other way? So, really, if you can kind of go back to how those behaviors make sense, you're much more equipped to like strategize of how do I help this person that I care about um, and create an environment where they have the potential to change. Yeah. And, and I think it's so beautiful what you're saying is this kind of, okay, I give space. The communication may have broken down for whatever reason. All of a sudden you see that your child is in, in real problem. Teenage, uh, teenage years are tough in any case to just continue to keep the bond you may have created, to keep the trust you may have created. Um, and then still have a child that is approachable about something that is turning out a problem, not only for him, but also for the entire family. But I'm putting myself into the shoes, for example, um, what you also pick up on is there is something that needs to be soothed, like the inner child that might have had a trauma. And the majority of this kind of use is due to this patching over, mood shifting, somehow resolving what I'm feeling right now, I don't like it, quickest way is a drug. Me as a parent, I'm just thinking, okay, and I always did that also with Victoria, if she's doing something which I think, oh, that's not her, that doesn't feature in in how I raised her or how I thought I raised her in terms of values, the first question I ask myself, what did I do wrong? And mm -hmm. I, as, an, as an, okay, so the parents, I think in general, beloved ones say, oh my God, maybe I've done something uh, involuntarily that created something in my child that she or he is suffering that that all of a sudden they need to need to use this and it's I don't know please please, please um, if you could explain a little bit how blurred maybe the line is between we are really talking about a trauma 
mm-hmm. um, caused by the parents. I mean, my mom, she had incredible food dependency, fight with the father, first response, going to the fridge and eating, soothing, mm-hmm. uh, calming down. Okay. This is, this is addiction. Full stop. Mm -hmm. She needed to have something stimulating her being positive. Me watching this as a child, you could not argue with her. She just needed it there and then, and that was it. So we didn't have the conscience. I mean, I just thought, okay, dad, you know, if you fight with mom and she's upset, instead of not getting her upset or talking about the the issue resolving, you see her eating and you say, now now you're getting even fatter, is maybe maybe not, not resolving things, okay? But I just wonder where the line is between, you know, just being with the wrong groups of friends and just out of fun. The fun gets a bit longer, gets more extended, gets a, becomes a real problem because of whatever is happening as a teenager with a group of friends. But the parents are actually OK. Or where really the entire trauma has been created, then the symptom is the substance use abuse. Yeah, those are two really nice examples. The, I'll go with the easy one, which is, you know, maybe a kid starts using cannabis or smoking pot or drinking, you know, in a social environment. And maybe maybe there, nothing happened in the family. They're just temperamentally a slightly anxious kid, right? You know, or they just, they're a little more awkward or they, you know, they're neurodiverse and they, you know, have difficulty in interpersonal relationships with other teens, right? So that if they start using substances to manage their social interactions and then over time, every single social interaction, substances are involved and that starts at 15 and all of a sudden they're 25 years old and they've never socialized without substances. All this learning has happened, right? Like where, you know, somebody, a kid who's not using substances is learning how to tolerate oh, I felt really awkward. I didn't know what to say, or I don't know how to navigate sex with, you know, all the things that teenagers have to figure out, right? The kid who is using substances, every single time they feel awkward in some way, they never learn how to deal with that awkwardness without substances, right? So if going back to that creep, right? So if at 25, suddenly they're like, wow, I'm drinking too much. And they take that alcohol out. They've got to figure out how to be social without substances, they got to learn how to do that. They've got to learn how to be comfortable. They've got to learn how to express themselves. They've got to learn how to have sex without substances, right? So they've kind of got to go back and learn all this stuff they skipped over, right? So that's just an example of maybe nothing happened in the family, but they just started doing something in their social environment that then turned out to be a real problem. And so when they thought about changing, they've got they've got a bunch of things they have to learn. The example of your mom, and when you said at the beginning of the show, sugar is an addiction, it absolutely is. Food, you know, gambling, sex, there's all sorts of things. Social media, absolutely, yeah. So our our brains, you know, respond, our little dopamine receptors are like, oh, that felt good. Let me do that again, right? Um, Sugar and food absolutely instigates that. But you growing up in an environment where your parents couldn't resolve conflict. They couldn't soothe each other. They couldn't manage their feelings. Um, you know, so you're a kid watching these two grownups manage their emotions or not manage their emotions well, right? Like that's your learning environment, right? So you're seeing every time someone gets upset, food or avoidance, like your dad sounds like he had avoidance, you know, so you're just learning, eat something or avoid, (laughs) 
Okay. Uh, no, absolutely. And I think this is so bipolar. And, and you're totally right. You know, me as a kid, dad would, would storm out of the house. Mom would go to the fridge. Okay. And you are like left in the middle. And it was interesting because um, my mother, definitely when I was upset, she said, oh, I'm going to cook you something nice. Let me make you some whatever dish I loved at, the, at that period. And so she installed, or you can, one can install very quickly, okay, things are not going right, but something is going to make you better. It's like the, the Magnum advert where basically it, it's, it's very phallic, it's very orgasmic, you know, biting into that ice cream. And it is, you know, played like this. It makes you, it makes you feel really, really good. Then on the other side, of course, uh, being a mother myself, at some point, Victoria was, I think, three or four, and she hurt herself, and she was crying. I was sitting her on the on the kitchen counter, and I was trying to soothe her and hug her. She said, "Mommy, mommy, I want an ice cream." And I would like, "Bing, all right." And I said, "Of course, we can have an ice cream, but first, you know, we get better, we smile again, and then when we're going to have a good time, we are going not to have a good time, mm-hmm. but you know, just because it happens." But it was kind of like an immediate reaction, which I. I was put back into, uh-uh, I'm not going to do what my mom, you know, installed more or less with my child. But these are very rational, rational processes. And unless they happen, things just can get very ugly for, as you were saying, maybe forever. Right. No, and in the invitation to change, we, um, you know, the first section is helping with understanding, right? So really how you understand the problem that, is in your home or your loved one is struggling with really matters, right? Because if, again, going back to that idea of if you think your loved one is just using substances or overeating because they're lazy or a bad person, you're going to approach that problem in a very particular way, right? You're going to be more frustrated. You're going to be more angry. You're going to take it more personally, all of these things, right? If you understand the problem through the lens of they're getting something from that that is really powerful to them. How, how do I understand that? Also understanding that ambivalence is totally normal. Like people start to make changes. They are deeply invested in making changes. And then they have a setback for whatever reason. How we respond to that as a loved one really matters. <laughs> you know, because like I said, like if you respond with, I'm going to try to talk you out of it. You're going to cause your loved one to dig in and hang on to it more versus if you approach it with, Huh, you seem you seem like you were cha- making a lot of positive changes and went back to some old behaviors with something hard. Mm-hmm. With something hard about it. What pulled you back? Right. So if I can approach it with curiosity, my loved one might actually engage in a conversation with me instead of hanging on to it tighter. And then the third part of the understanding section is one size doesn't fit all. So maybe your loved one needs treatment. Maybe your loved one needs to find a yoga class and learn to soothe themselves, you know, or meet with a dietitian, or meet with a community elder or pick up a hobby. I mean, there's a lot of things that compete with substance use, right? So we want to really open this lens of like what can be helpful. But the thing I was going to respond to in terms of what happened for you with your daughter is the helping with awareness section is really being able to encourage the helper to like really slow down and understand where you're coming from. Like what have been your experiences? What's your learning history? What are some of the things that you might need to change? Because you've got habits too. We all do. Um, that's just human. But the the thing that you did a great job of mentioning was family members suffer from the same stigma. So behavioral problems are stigmatized problems. If it's in your family, it's for sure blamed on the parents. Family members know that. Um, parents in particular suffer from massive shame. They just like, if their kid is struggling, they think I did something wrong. 
This is me. I can't fix it. And what's really painful, we wrote a book chapter on shame and stigma for family members and the research on the reality that family members really are blamed for the problem. They've done studies that family members are blamed for the problem and they're blamed for not fixing it. So they feel bad. Um, So part of what we're trying to do is just extend the compassion and extend the understanding to the family members so that they don't feel defensive and they can actually be kind to themselves as well and be able to do exactly what you did, which is like, oh, wait a minute. I don't want to do that. What can I do instead? Instead of just going into the old habit um, or trying to pretend like nothing's going on um, and that you don't have any issues yourself. We all have issues. Um, oh, we, we all have issues. And all I think have that, yeah. And this is what you were saying. Also, it is a very tailored approach. You talk about how personal this is. And I think there is no size that fits all. It really is. Everybody is very different and everybody has their own best friend. Okay. Yeah. And this is exactly this value game. And I wonder also in your uh, work to also find out me as a parent, me as a sister, whatever, A, how can I best approach it? If they don't see they have a problem, but I think I have it. And how do I find out what is it really what they get out of it? Because the value of the value, all right, (laughs) is something that I need to swap for. So I cannot give, you know, take away their best friend saying, stop it, instead of say, start it and and give them something that they would say like, yeah, and say, okay, I love this drug. I'm high, you know, straight away. Uh, Yoga? Are you kidding me? Two and a half hours of sweating, listening to other people go, (gasps) and whatever. Okay. That ain't going to work for my drug addiction or my substance use. So how do you find out as somebody that really cares that beginning of before I communicate, what can I offer as an alternative that is really of value to you? Because there's also a disconnect. People that use, people that drink often, whatever, they are different people. And sometimes you go like, oh my God, I I, I don't find you anymore. Who are you? And perhaps the other person is seriously lost, maybe without noticing, and they say, I don't really know. Right. Do you see what I'm trying to, to find out? Yes. And you went right to the helping with action section, which is, you know, how do I, which includes communication strategies, you know, and I would argue if you've got somebody who's doing some very concerning things and you're upset, you know, so you're already to the point where you're like scared or you're mad, um, you know, because something's happening in your family, maybe they're spending too much money or being verbally abusive or, you know, the whole host of things that come along with heavy substance use. If you're having a difficult time regulating your own emotions and can't quite step back and do that initial work of like trying to understand how the behaviors make sense because you're so dysregulated, maybe you need to start out in the helping with awareness section a little bit more so that you can just take care of yourself, like regulate yourself because you're not going to be able to use the communication strategies if you come into the conversation all agitated and tense. up already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like wanting to talk about the fight you had two weeks ago, right? Like you're going to have to. So we designed the invitation to change approach so that you can step in at any point that you feel like you need. And some people, you know, like if the problem's kind of lower level and, or it's a little removed from you and you're not so emotionally charged by it, maybe you can just start with the communication section and really start to kind of ask open-ended questions and be curious, Um, you know, because again, going back to my point earlier, we tend to lecture. We really want to tell people with substance use problems what to do. 
you know, or somebody who's struggling with food or somebody who's gambling. We really want to just give them the answer, tell them to stop. <laughs> exactly. And our problem is gone as well. You know, we don't have to care anymore or worry. Exactly. Right? So these these strategies that get the conversation going and, you know, how we set the stage for change happens through conversation. We've got to understand what the person thinks about their behavior. We've got to set the stage so they're not defensive. So, you know, asking, first of all, listening, like really working on listening skills. So if I ask a question and I get an answer, that actually scares me a little bit. If I then jump back into lecturing because you just scared me, you've just set yourself back, right? You you did something that got the person to tell you something, which is great, but then you got to be able to just ask the next question and the next question and have a conversation where you don't have an agenda other than finding to out help the person feel safe that they can tell you about their experience. And you can have your sole goal being, I just want to understand I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to try to talk you out and of it. It's so and hard, you, Carrie. It's so I hard. And right? I think, I think that, we have that helping with awareness section because it is really hard. Um, and, you know, part of the helping with awareness section is doing the work to identify your values so that you can really understand why am I having this conversation? I'm having this conversation because I love this person. I know they're suffering. I want to stay connected to them and I want to help them to change. So if those are my values, getting in a fight with them probably doesn't line up with that, right? So even though it's really painful to have these conversations where I'm getting information I don't like, I'm getting information that scares me, knowing that the information in this conversation is going to let me walk away knowing a little bit more about the problem so then I can strategize and I can do all that stuff, you know, that might help me change the environment. And then I've also left my loved one thinking, oh, wow, I just didn't get lectured. Oh, wow. They didn't try to take it away from me. They actually wanted to know me, which lowers the defensiveness. It lowers the defensiveness. It increases the odds that the next time you have a conversation, they're going to be even more engaged, you know, or more willing to hear what you have to say, you know, so really like holding the thread to your values of like, why am I tolerating this difficult conversation? <laughs> yes, but this is so this is so relevant, Carrie, simply because um, one says that you cannot tell somebody to change. Okay, you cannot tell anybody to do anything. The only way to change people is to actually change your own behavior uh, instead of reacting, responding. And with that, creating the atmosphere, what you were just saying, that that already invites to change. I'm changing. So the other person goes, oh, this is new. I need to adapt. So already within this, I don't understand what's going on. I have to re repivot or reposition myself as well. It's already kind of the first step of saying, okay, change is actually induced not by somebody telling, but by somebody maybe behaving differently and the other one reacting or responding to it. So that, that seems to be it. And I think what is really, really interesting is, you know, we all have read James Clear and, you know, um, what is it? Atomic Habits. <laughs> and you talked about ambivalence, right? And you talked about, uh, you know, being good for 10 days, even a month, even, I don't know, even a couple of years or seven years and boom, something happens and you fall back. I think this is uh, the one of the most disappointing moments in anybody's life. You as the user are trying to really modify a, a bad habit into something positive and 
self-sabotage and then whoa, comes back the negative voices and you know whatever but you also from an from an outsider point of view like what the hell happened she was good he was good for two decades even what was so bad to kind of wipe out these 20 years of being steady because once an addict they say always an addict because you have that memory the muscle memory the brain memory the emotional memory the you know the the, the kind of oh my god yeah yeah um tell me about this 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 ambivalence and how important it is how to respond if somebody relapses and also this reinforcement you talk a lot about positive or negative reinforcement and what a fantastic tool that can potentially be yeah so the what you said about the once an addict always an addict um you know i mean that really that catch-all phrase <laughs> yeah um, I don't think it's true, but um, the the it's a easy way to kind of describe the memory process because once a habit is in your memory banks, we don't have a delete button in our brain. We can't be like delete, <laughs> not in there anymore, right? That's that's the point I was referring to. Exactly. Yeah. and I it's love always, that with the delete it's button. There. It's oh. always there. Um, that part of your brain knows if I have a drink or if I take a pill. I'm going to feel X, Y, and Z. I'm going to know that forever. Just like we don't forget how to ride a bike, right? Like once you ride a bike, you always know how to ride a bike. You might be a little wobbly when you get on it after 30 years of not riding a bike, but you know how to do it. So that's there. Um, you got to have a bunch of new learning on top of that. So that one behavior of I take a pill to say, you know, sleep, right? So I have I have nightmares. I take a pill to sleep. I, you know, I have a busy mind. I take, a, you know, too many pills to sleep and I've become dependent. I have to figure out how to learn how to put myself to bed, right? So I have to change my habits. I might have to change what I eat when I eat. I have to change my routine before bed. I have to change how I respond when I wake up in the middle of the night. I have to change what I do during the day so that I'm actually tired by the time I, you know, there's all of this learning that replaces this one easy thing, which is to take a pill, Mm. Right. Mm. So that takes time. And, you know, there's one of the things I always say to family members is we freak out when somebody who has a substance use problem has a setback, yes. doesn't know what they're doing. Right. So essentially, when somebody returns to an old behavior for me, I'm like, oh, they didn't know how to manage something without it. So they went back to something that was easy, right? You know, whether it was like they were feeling bad, something was going on in their life that wasn't getting resolved, something they didn't know how to manage it. So for me, I'm like, okay, let's let's get in there and understand what you underestimated, what's changed in your life that you didn't know how to handle. Let's just figure it out, right? So I approach it as a problem to be solved. What a lot of people approach it as is it's a sign you were never serious in the first place. Loser. Right. You're weak. You're back to square one. I can't trust you, right? So they just erase all of the progress that was actually up until that point. And that causes a person to then, it, that activates that shame response in the person with the problem. They feel bad. And then it also activates that, okay, so I have to hang on to this behavior tighter. Instead of, oh, I just didn't know what I was doing. Let's let's problem solve around that. Let's examine. Let's, you know, let's think about what in my environment shifted that caused me to be ambivalent, you know, whatever it is. So it's just, you're just creating these, like, do you want somebody to get rigid and dug in? Or do you want to keep this environment of, let's be curious about what's going on. 
Let's not activate any shame. <laughs> and let's also just respect how human beings learn, which repetition, time, and lots of help. And people with family members who've got a, somebody struggling with a risky behavior like substance use, once that person makes changes, they're like, good, I hope those changes can't ever change, right? They have to stay in place because we're not going to go back to that old bad stuff. Like if you think about how we learn any other thing, so I, you know, I'm a pianist, I play the piano, but like if you're 20, if you wanted your 20 year old kid who just decided they wanted to learn how to play the piano, you wouldn't instantly expect them to play a Chopin etude, right? You'd get them a piano teacher, they'd learn their scales, they'd learn simple songs, they'd stick with that. They might need to get a more advanced piano teacher. They'd learn some songs incorrectly. They'd get the rhythm wrong. They wouldn't understand the piece. You wouldn't punish them if they had those mistakes in learning, right? You'd be like, oh, you just have to learn it this way. Practice it this way, right? So we have tons of compassion for how we learn, except when it comes to behavior problems. <laughs> we just want them to be able to change it. So the second it happens, we want them to hold it in place um, instead of thinking, Maybe you need a different coach. Maybe you need a different support. Maybe there's something over, else over here that we have totally underestimated that you need to learn. So let's go over here, right? Um, we just look at it as a failure. <laughs> and that sets everybody up for more stress. failure. More failure. Because if, if right. yeah, I mean, you you being also with, with people that are affected, so you, you become maybe also a trusted and loved one to the user is you've had this fantastic, as you were saying at the beginning, this fantastic development, and you could really see that your work makes inroads. And then you, of course, positively reinforcing, hey, it's another week down, fantastic. And how did you cope there? Was there a moment that you were ambivalent, but you know, you the the the, the power of the pause, you paused, you were aware, you didn't react, you responded and you moved on. And then ta-da-da-da-da, something happened. So that moment, I think, where we are not the professional like you, we tend to then again stigmatize and just say, okay, fine, yeah. What's the point of getting uh, sober if you, you know, going to get drunk again? There's even a famous song about it. And I think this is such a powerful tool because the person that had the relapse, they're the first one to feel a failure, ashamed, mm -hmm. Oh my God, I have to start from zero again and uh, being torpedoed with the inner voice. And then comes the outer voice on top. I mean, that is everything but, yeah. but helping them to continue. So if you are really disappointed in your child and they've done so well, what's the first thing you have to do? Have to Do you have to inquire again? Do you just have to go like, okay, let's just breathe for a moment. And, I mean, how do you rebuild the trust not between you, but the trust in your child, the user, whoever it is, that they can, they should try again and it will eventually get to where they want to be. So basically just how you rolled it out, you know, being able to most likely take that big deep breath and pause and be like, okay, I'm really upset. I'm scared. I'm scared the old behavior is going to come back you know, or they just did something and made me mad again. So I'm mad at them again, right? You need to register your own reactivation of emotion and figure out, okay. And going back to that original value of, I care about my loved one. I want them healthy and well. My relationship with them as a powerful, powerful 
point of <laughs> connection and change. So how do I stay connected to them and understand what just happened? And being able to go back to them and say, you know what? I'm kind of disappointed or I'm a little scared, but I totally just want to understand what happened. You know, you seemed like you were moving along and doing all sorts of things. And then you seem like you've returned to some of the behavior that you had changed. Did something change for you? You know, like what's, what can you tell me what's happening? So going back to that curious stance and seeing if you can get them talking about it. Um, we just, we uh, just interviewed this mom who she really had to work on her communication skills because she, she wanted to lecture. That was her, like she just wanted, she thought her job was to teach her kid, right? Which is a lot of parents understandably have that, feel like they have a, <laughs> that's their job, right? Um, so she worked really hard not to get into that state. And her son was abusing opioids um, and um, had gone to multiple rehabs and he started smoking pot and she thought he needed to be sober. You know, like she had gotten the message of like, you have to be sober from everything. And suddenly he's smoking pot again. He wasn't using opiates, but he was smoking pot. And she was really mad. Um, she thought he didn't care about sobriety. She thought he didn't care about anything. It was just, you know, going back to his old behavior. And she really worked really hard, came to him and said, Hey, I thought you were trying to be sober. You seem like you're doing something else. Can you just, I'm really wanting to be curious. Can you tell me what's going on? And he actually disclosed to her that he was having horrible cravings for the opiates and he was smoking pot so that he didn't go back to the opiates. So even it was even though it was a behavior that she didn't really want, she was able to see that he was actually really trying not to go to this even worse behavior. So she was able to kind of stay in the conversation and understand what was making him anxious. And they worked on what was activating the cravings. And, you know, I mean, it was like a really, so she got information she didn't like, which is I'm smoking pot, but she was able to understand that he was actually trying to do something that she desperately wanted him to do, which is not use opiates. Um, so, you know, once, once family members start to get these strategies, they start, to, they start to be positively reinforced for it because it starts to work, you know, their kid, collaborates with them instead of pushing them away. Um, so it's it's all just a bunch of different behaviors that weave in and out um, depending on the situation and the circumstances for the person with the problem and for the person trying to help. Yeah, no, Carrie, I love this uh, example because this, I think, is one of the best examples ever, how important it is not to judge straight away you, what you see and take that as a fact, but to say, so what actually happens? How come you use something that already is a substance? So what, you know, and, and the first reaction is disappointment, judgment, oh my God. And, you know, pot is often seen also as a, you know, like smoking, like, like a segue drug to something worse, that it was such a smart kind of solution. Short term, it was still not good, but it was a bit better than the absolute worst. Which would be, and I, I think this is really a super example you, you, you mentioned to just show the parents when it comes to this relapse, maybe there was a motivation, um, you know, that was actually a positive. There was a positive in this, generally speaking, negative behavior of going into pot. And that's, this is super. And I wanted to ask you this. What is the most, I mean, the most dramatic case you had to work on and, and where, 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 what really touched you and, and where you learned most from also in terms of writing the first book, but uh, also this, this book you've been, you've been um, getting together with your colleagues. There's definitely no, there's no worst case. They're all so similar, you know, there's, you know, of the 
of the most painful and the most difficult. I've got a hundred families who are in that, you know, I mean, they're just, there's a lot of pain and a lot of suffering out there. And, um, you know, I mean, I think the, the, mo- the most painful for me are these families who've kind of gone through traditional treatment or have been told these kind of traditional ideas of you have to confront your loved one's just an addict. If they relapse, you know, you've got to let them bottom out. Like all, if, if they kind of soaked up that traditional message and have sent their kid to rehab 10 times um, and the kid keeps coming out and returning to use several of them once they start to use our strategies and their kid like we've discovered your child actually had bipolar disorder your child was hearing voices you know i worked with his family for a very long time and the the father was so angry at his kid because the kid was like rebellious and you know it was like this large catholic family five kids and this one and they were all like super close family lovely and they had this one kid that was just breaking the rules you know he was harmful to his siblings he was you know getting in trouble in school they started sending him to all these different treatment programs and he would come out and he would return to substance use i worked for them with them for like three years to get this get them to kind of it was really hard i literally felt like i was kind of helping them not be brainwashed with all this stuff that they'd heard before they finally got to the where the, the this young man was able to tell them um, after yet another hospitalization, he'd been hearing voices since he was 15, but he didn't want to have schizophrenia. He didn't want to tell anybody. So he he literally told his dad, I would rather be a drug addict than have schizophrenia. So for a decade, they'd been treating the a substance use problem. When he'd been hiding, he was hearing voices. Um, so when he would like, punch his sister or he would like have these like violent things it was in response to auditory hallucinations and they just thought he was using drugs and was a bad kid um so now he's in the right treatment and now you know the family has more understanding and they can you know deal with him you know with his chronic condition in a completely different way but it was just heartbreaking that they spent that much time thinking it was a drug problem when it was this underlying horribly painful thing for this young man um you know and they're they're all doing better now um, because they're just approaching it through another way. But, you know, I've got countless examples just like that. Um, Or, you know, a child who's been badly traumatized and won't talk about it, you know? And so they end up like, I worked with a family whose, again, daughter had been in and out of kind of traditional drug rehabs and going to treatment, going to treatment, going to treatment. The thing that she never disclosed was that she was raped and held hostage when she was 15 years old, Um, you know, and she was, terrified to disclose that to anybody and the treatment programs were forcing her to go to aa meetings and things like that so here's this young person who's been traumatized being told i have to sit in a room full of strangers and talk about myself and there's a lot of men in here right i don't feel safe so she kept pushing away from treatment she kept pushing away from and you know being rebellious and using drugs and they thought she was just a terrible drug addict Mm. she was terrified Mm. yeah Um, so, Sorry. So good. Those, those are some examples of like this is such a complex problem. And and we like to whitewash it and just make it bad drug addiction. It's I've never met somebody who just has a substance use problem. I literally have never met somebody that that's the only thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, no absolutely. And I think there uh, your colleague Gabomonte is totally, totally right. It is a symptom. And that is your invitation or to change invitation to look further and then invitation to change. 
And what touches me about about this story with a girl, you know, and I don't, I don't know, do you have children, if I may ask? No, I don't. Okay, okay. So as a mother, um, also, you know, happened unexpectedly, she was given, so <laughs> a lovely gift, unplanned. Um, as a mother, my first, my first reaction was, okay, what sort of relationship did she have with her parents that she did not feel she could trust her parents with this? Why this shame? I mean, when when I think if that would have happened to me, I'd be I'd be outside of the family. Okay, let's say not not you know family abuse, sexual abuse in the family, but really it is you're at a party and you get raped and you get you know I mean whatever that that horrible thing. I mean the first thing you do is potentially go to your parents, your cocoon, your loved environment, uh, where you can say, mommy, you know what, something really bad happened. I don't know. And even if that is not the case, Carrie, I'm just thinking, okay, me as a mother, I see whether something happened to my child. You feel it. Energy changes. She's talking less. She's maybe putting on more drapey clothes. She stops putting on her makeup because, because she's for herself thinking, okay, I must, I must deep dive. Yeah. And that the, and then before she takes drugs. But what I'm saying is, again, I would start blaming myself first. Why did I not manage to create a trust, a bond that my child turns to me first when things go wrong for her? Yeah. And I think for every family that something like this happens, it, it's, I mean, yes, sometimes there's, something in the family, you know, generational trauma where the parents weren't available for whatever reason, you know, or they're going through, you know, there's, I just interviewed a family where they had another child who was, had cancer, right? So they had a a younger child had a trauma, but the parents were dealing with the older child who had cancer and were kind of unavailable, not because they were neglectful, unaware parents. They had a kid in the hospital with cancer, so, the, you know, they just couldn't attend to everything. So that's an example of like, they weren't neglectful parents who missed something or didn't have a bond. They weren't available for a completely understandable reason. Um, so, I mean, I think the more we can just bring compassion to everybody involved um, instead of, you know, and because that's that like fear that fa- that keeps families from seeking treatment is they think, you're going to tell me I did something bad and that's what's wrong with my kids. Nobody wants to feel a failure. And parents, I think, definitely are part of that. I, I do. Well, nobody wants to have a behavior problem. Nobody wants to have a mental illness. Nobody wants to have a substance use problem. You know, but like these are not things that we think, can't wait. Can't wait till I'm addicted. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's like, what is your most attractive part? <laughs> well, I'm a total maniac. <laughs> you know, it's like, of course, nobody. But isn't that the path of growing up? Isn't that the path of discovering yourself? I mean, if I look at my own life, for me, you know, one of the things that, with regards to my own trauma, that helped me really uh, um, flip the switch or flick the switch mm-hmm. is um, hypnosis. So there I had, you know, the possibility of for the first time I found out really there is something so deep. Um, if you go to therapy or you have a coach or you talk about, I mean, yes, yes, yes. But something just has to just be substituted, taken out literally like under the bonnet of a car. You you, you unscrew and you rescrew and then things somehow uh, can have a chance to to go better or get better. And And for me, it worked for me, but as you say, there's 50 shades of gray in how to approach anything. But this is what you were saying. Nobody wants to be a failure. Nobody wants to have a trauma. Nobody wants, we do have all. 
you know, a trauma. And I think this acceptance in society slowly maybe is is a little bit more vulnerability. We talk about that, this ambivalence or people have been saying, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. It's my way to deal with my problems. What the hell? And you go like, seriously, that's, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Well, but I mean, part of what we put in the beyond addiction and the invitation to change is um, that, and we can, you know, end on this, if like just the idea of self-compassion that we really, we, we really are all human. We all have our foibles. Um, we all screw up. And if we can have some compassion for ourselves, like when we're suffering, when we missed the boat, we didn't handle something the way we wished we did. If I have a shame response to that, and I think, yeah, you see this confirms I'm a terrible parent. I'm a terrible person. I'm just going to go down that shame spiral versus being able to say, I didn't quite know what I was doing. Um, I'm really in pain right now. Let me slow down and take care of myself a little bit so that I can go back to trying to figure out how to change things, right? So self-compassion really is the special ingredient that keeps people engaged in the difficult parts of the change process and being able to like really take care of those painful emotions that come along with change. Because like you said, like when somebody screws up and returns to an old behavior, they feel bad. They feel bad about themselves. Um, They feel I screwed up, you know? So if we can help them bring some compassion to that instead of shame, maybe they're going to get back on the saddle and keep trying to change, you know? And maybe if we brought more compassion to families of like, yeah, and this is what Gabor talks about a lot. Like entire communities are using substances because they don't have resources. There's cultural trauma. There's generational trauma. There's socioeconomic inequalities. You know, they're suffering. It's not because they're a community of bad, lazy people. They're suffering. So we actually, as a society, need to be able to really bring this compassion to each other and other communities that we don't understand. So your community may not look like my community. If I judge that and assume a bunch of bad stuff about you, <laughs> um, I'm not, we're not helping each other. Um, and you're just going to get more marginalized. You're going to get more misunderstood. And odds are you're going to start to return to more significant ways to escape that pain. And substances work magically short term, right? So, I mean, it really like as a society, we need to dig deep and think, okay, why are drugs and alcohol increasing? What What's happening here? <laughs> why are people having to numb out? Why are people in so much pain that they're having to use drugs, alcohol, food, escaping to social media? People are suffering. So why? Why would you say it is the case? Why do you say that you see this? That's probably a whole nother show. <laughs> it is. You got to come back for that. But no, tell me, what is what is your gut feeling? Um, I think disconnection. I think um, we're becoming, you know, um, which is why we are so invested in trying to help families heal and trying to help, you know, entire communities heal and be connected to each other is because we've become more fractured. We've become more distanced. We understand each other less. And human beings are social creatures. We're really social creatures. Our physiology is dependent on us being connected. So for every moment we're disconnected and on our phone or alone, you know, in our homes doing virtual work and not talking to anybody, our nervous systems are suffering. We're not doing well. 
So um, I think I think that's the main thing. And I think there's a whole host of things that are contributing to that disconnection. But I think it's really lack of community and lack of safe connection with other humans. Um, when I don't feel safe with humans, I can turn to a substance. Yes. Yes. And our society as it is right now is also not helping to learn being connected to a human. And that was it's so funny that we kind of almost end on this note because in our pre-conversation, we we're saying, yeah, you know, it's so great. We can connect over Zoom. How great. <laughs> And then it's like, but we do need to touch and cuddle and smell the other person. And, you know, and it does, it is just of us being tribal, beautifully social community. Yes, I always say we are globally connected, yet, to yet totally lonely, you know, because you can be on your phone, you're somewhere else. And maybe you even have family members, but you see them all going that way. If you, um, and I always end with this kind of question, if you had something you would say with your knowledge today, to usually I say to your 16-year-old self, but what would you say today to a, a teenager or coming on to teenager and their parents from your side of the story, from your experience about this issue? Um, notice the impact of shame. Give me more. That's <laughs> <a> little. <laughs> Um, just notice when it comes up in you. Notice when you have the impulse to hide. Notice when you have the impulse to keep a secret and be curious about that and see if you can find connection and community and find some way to talk about that because you're not you're not the only person that's had that experience, I promise you. <laughs> Whatever experience you're feeling shame about, somebody else has had it. Um, so just really trying to connect with humanity, your humanity in your struggle, you know, because like all these behaviors we talked about, right? There are things that make people feel bad about themselves. They think I shouldn't be struggling. Instead of saying, I'm struggling. Everybody around me is struggling. Let me talk about it. Let me see if I can get some help. <laughs> Let me see if I can do something else. If we could keep these behaviors above ground, um, where we can actually examine them and work on them and talk about them, then they don't get so dug in and they don't get so persistent um, and so strong. And it will be easier for people to give them up. Um, so, And we might not rely on substances so much if we were actually talking and connecting and dealing with our emotions in a different way. Yeah, I love this. And shame, I, is I, shame is the silencer, you know, so that's like really like it's this, it silences people. Yeah, yeah. no, it really makes you makes you retreat. And uh, you're talking about suffering, and I heard, I don't know who it was who said this, but pain is acute, but suffering is a choice. Mm -hmm. That means, and when I hear the word choice, Carrie, I always go like, okay, that's the biggest enabler for me. Yeah, mm -hmm. on one hand, you go like, oh my God, oh my God, like a kid in the candy store, but it gives me the power to go and do something about it. So when there is shame, you know, and you start to suffer, is it like, is it actually true? Do you need to be ashamed? Okay, you got peer pressure. You're the only chicken that stands there with a glass of water rather than a pint. Right. Oh, you know, it's still okay, right. right? Yeah. At least I thought so when I was at right now. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. And thank you and also to Dr. Futi and uh, Dr. Carpenter for this magnificent book. Ignore all this. this yeah. what, what, what you don't have in the brain, you have on your sticker. <laughs> I always say. Yeah, so and um, dear listeners, there's a website, cmcffc.org. 
with, we're a nonprofit, so part of our fundraising efforts, we're, our goal is to put a massive amount of content on that website for free. So any family member anywhere can go to that website and get, there's videos, there's things you can read, you know, so you've got the workbook, but that, that website will be a repository of helpful things for family members. Um, so if you want more information about how to get trained in the invitation change approach or some of these strategies, you know, if you're up at 11 o'clock at night worrying about your kid, you might find some comfort there, which is no, our goal. Absolutely, absolutely. And thank you very much for mentioning it. it. It is anyway, it's going to be for everybody uh, part of the video description. So all the links are going to be there. So if you don't want to work through that book, even though, you know, this is really a book you read in an evening, it is so you know, so helpful and well-written and, and structured. But if you want a quick fix, you always can go online. There's our new drug. There you go. You see, we are, we are caught in this, Carrie, right? You yeah. can't do with, you can't do without. I mean, hello, yeah. and this is what you were saying about, you know, society and our kids are going to have, you know, real trouble in keeping everything in the proper balance. 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 Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, I think that's the other key word here is just like notice when you're out of balance, you know, like, are you doing something too much? You know, have you started to rely on something too much? You know, we've got like families where we've, we've, they put a box by their front door and when they walk in the door, they put their phone in the box. Um, and the phone is not in the house. It's not in the house. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Apart from, you know, the, all the, 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 what do you call it, micro smog or wave smog. This is great. I actually don't have fried brain. <laughs> I even take my phone to bed because I'm listening to, I always say, a podcast a day keeps dementia away. No <laughs> <laughs> electronics in the bedroom. Exactly. I know. Absolutely. I don't know that. <laughs> that kind. Whatever. Anyway, Karen, absolute pleasure meeting you. It's been long in the making, long in the coming. And I so uh, enjoyed talking to you and your work is pivotal. Please keep on going. And, you know, I'm going to support, um, promote your work, your books and that of your colleagues. And please, you know, where your second home is. So thank you. So All much. Right. Thank you. Okay. And thank you, my dear Mentory TV community. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did the conversation with Dr. Carrie Wilkins. Listen, it, the book is incredible. Um, it's not the only book she's written. She's written also Beyond Addiction, award-winning, by the way, and uh, <laughs> another one beyond that. And um, I think the entire issue about addiction or substance use and abuse is something that carries across all of us. So I think we may as well just take a deeper look at what's happening, especially around us, but also in the mirror and, and admit and accept and, and, and look at it as a long-term journey. Uh, nothing is black and white. It's all a journey. And perhaps this is why Mentory TV has this stay curious tagline, come from a place of uh, curiosity and then yeah enjoy your own journey and thanks so much for joining if you like the episode well then give us a like subscribe and i see you on the other side with another fantastic conversation see you then bye together we go out there together we begin to share together we find our way together i'm dr mona lisa and I've been a medical intuitive for over 30 years. Let me help you find new ways to heal physical and emotional problems. 
Be a part of my Healthy Living Intuitively podcast studio audience every week. Follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mona Lisa fan page, and Instagram, Dr. Mona Lisa One, to get that information. I answer audience questions, and you can learn from people calling in that might be dealing with the same things that you are. Follow Healthy Living Intuitively, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, and wherever you get your podcasts.